following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 10.15 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. You know, it was a number of, of years ago. Boy, I don't want to, I don't know how long ago it was. I, I did not see um, this movie. <laughs> So I don't know exactly how long ago it was, but I remember a line from this movie because, and I'm not telling you to watch this movie by any means whatsoever, but I remember a line from it that, that would just like became famous for like a year, year and a half. And this movie was known by this line because it also had to do with a song that was very popular at the time. And um, this is the line. You complete me. And if you're a little older in life, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're younger, or if you've never heard that before, wonderful. That's great. Okay, dorky movie. All right. Uh, it's Jerry Maguire was his name, and he said that to his main squeeze in the movie, um, one of many squeezes in that movie that he had, from what I understand. And, uh, and that's why I'm thinking, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Uh, that doesn't, uh, that's just a joke. It does not, it doesn't work that way, Jerry Maguire, as you show by your own life. Um, this is what completes stuff. Peanut butter is completed by what? Honey. Honey, people. Come on. All right. I will go with you. I know I'm in the minority there. But so we'll go with it, with you by majority vote. Peanut butter, jelly. Um, what about this one? A steak on the grill. Cavenders. I don't know if you realize that or not, but if you don't know what Cavenders is, come to me after the sermon, and I will, I will, I will change your world. Okay. All right. Um, how about this one? And, and and some of you in this room will know this one. Um, an arrow is completed by a bow, or vice versa. Uh, a pick 'em up truck, as George calls them, pick 'em up trucks, is completed by a really big mud tire. All right. Uh, I'll tell you this. We found I found this out again just last night. That a fireworks display is completed by a can of off, okay? And if you forget it, you will be paying for it next day. If I do this any during the service, just ignore it, okay? Just ignore it. Um, how about this one? A KU championship completes a Big 12 basketball season. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? That's exactly right. Do you realize that the last time KU didn't win the Big 12 championship, not only were my daughters not born, but Donna and I had not even met yet. That's how long they've won the Big 12 title. (laughs) I'm talking about the sport that matters, Zed, all right? You know what, we could go on and on and on and on about what completes what. We're looking this summer at spiritual disciplines, okay? And there's something that we have to be very, very clear about when it comes to spiritual disciplines. What spiritual disciplines are about, why we should put these to practice in our lives is so that we can grow closer to God by looking more like Jesus, his son. Spiritual disciplines have absolutely nothing to do with earning salvation or making ourselves worthy of salvation, okay? 
You see, salvation is about being born. That's what Jesus called it, being born again. And and we had little to do with that physically as well as spiritually other than us saying yes to Jesus. No, spiritual disciplines are not about salvation. What they're about is it's a matter of growing up. And so far, what we've looked at, uh, Jay kicked this off with submission, which, which is obedience. The importance of obedience in our lives. We looked at fasting. Okay, and, and I had quite a few people talk to me about that after the service, saying, man, I felt like you were talking to me because I've been looking at that lately. Okay, um, Study, we looked at the importance of studying, and not just studying God's Word, as important as that is, but studying the world around us as well. God created it, okay? And then last week, what we looked at was solitude. Solitude. Getting alone with, with God at times. You see, his son Jesus did that. He, he got alone with his father often, as a matter of fact, as we read through Scripture. Now, what we're going to talk about today is the other half of solitude, which we've already spent a little bit of time on last week. We're going to dig a little deeper today, and that is this, meditation. Meditation. When we think of meditation and we think of church, all right, those of you who have been around church for a significant period of time, where your mind's going to go immediately, I would guess, is communion, because that's what we call us coming together in God's Word and somebody telling us a small spoken word to focus our minds on communion. But there's a lot more to meditation than a communion meditation, all right? You see, meditation is the jelly to the peanut butter of solitude, all right? Okay, let's, let's dig into it a little bit here. I did a lot of reading this week about, about meditation, whether it be meditation that, that, that those in the world participate in or Christian meditation. So we're going to dig into that just a little bit here, okay? Prayer. Now, we're going to dig really deep into prayer here in a few weeks, okay? All right, but understand, prayer is the interactive relationship we have with God about what we and God are working on together. Christian meditation is the listening side of this interactive relationship. At its most basic and fundamental level, Christian meditation is simply a loving attentiveness to God. See, last week we spoke about the importance of listening to God. Okay, we talked about how important that is. It is done through solitude and can also be amplified in our lives through meditation. Now, we're going to have to do some defining here, okay? Because when I say meditation, maybe communion is where your mind went, but there's some other places your mind might go, okay? And let me tell you this. If you were to type in meditation on Google, you would be very quickly led astray when it comes to meditation. These are, these are the words that popped up when, when I did just that. I didn't type in Christian meditation, I just typed in meditation. Um, Buddha, that's one, I mean, popped up very, very quickly. Um, Zen, that's another one. Um, Here's another one. Transcendental, I mean, I thought that was a dental insurance company. Okay? And I read this as, as I put a number of definitions together. I came up with a hybrid definition that I read in like place after place after place, all right? And this is it. Now listen closely. This is, this is going to be important in showing you a contrast in here in just a moment, all right? 
In the eyes of the world, meditation is an activity in which the practitioner just sits and allows the mind to dissolve. Okay, I thought that was called video gaming, all right? But apparently it is meditation as well. If you were to type in meditation on your Google search and hit search, you much of what you find is wrong on so many levels. But one thing that is right that you will see is this. The outcome of meditation is supposed to be peace. So here's the question. What makes Christian meditation different? Now listen to this very closely, all right? Because this is a distinction that is huge. The main distinction of Christian meditation is a focus on filling rather than emptying. Got that? That's important enough that I think we need to say it again. Okay, because what I just tell you, the definition is, is, is making the mind dissolve. All right, so let's listen again. The main distinction of Christian meditation is a focus on filling rather than emptying. It is not done as a self help mechanism or a tool to relax, although it almost always results in relaxation but rather as a way to connect with God, to hear and to obey. Christian meditation, sometimes referenced as contemplative prayer, is essentially little more than an active response, I hope this sounds familiar to you from last week, to the psalm, the 46th psalm, Be still and know I am God. Do you remember what that be still? We we looked at what that meant in, in the Hebrew language. Relax and know I am God. It's time to discern the still, small voice of Did you know that the Bible, as little as we talk about it, I have never preached, ever preached a sermon on meditation. And I needed a lot of help when it came to getting ready for this sermon this week because I don't practice it. I'll be straight with you. Right? Did you know the Bible mentions meditation over 40 times? And many of those times it's connected with this. His word. Meditate on my word. Nathan Foster, he, he, this is what he had to say. Because this is so foreign to me. Okay? I needed a little help in explaining this to you. So listen closely. This is just his personal experience. With meditation, the author of The Making of an Ordinary Saint. This is what he says. For me, meditation usually begins with closing my eyes and taking a series of deep breaths. This helps me begin to let go of the distractions and temporary concerns that seem to dominate much of my life. You ever been there before? Some thoughts I let drift by, others that I need to remember I jot them down. I prayerfully invite God to guide my time while I simply focus my attention on Him. Oftentimes, I silently pray, confess, worship, untangle situations, and make resolutions. Sometimes I just sit and listen. Occasionally, I fall asleep. (laughs) I like that. I don't think God minds. He knows when I'm exhausted and I mean well. Often, however, silence brings emptiness. You know why our world despises silence? Because it brings emptiness. 
I get to face the emotion that seems most characteristic of the human experience. Loneliness. I'm reminded of how I tend to turn good things like family, friends, social media, work, church activities, sex, TV, books, internet, future goals, spending money, sports, and hobbies into distractions in order to fill the void. That's what we're going to talk about here for a little while, guys, is the void. The space that we try to fill, the hole in our lives that people in this world, including Christians at times, are trying to fill with stuff. We could call them, I, I told you, got to be careful anytime I'm teaching or, or speaking or something, because I like to chase squirrels, okay? This, the, in, the, in the void, you know what happens to avoid the void for most people in life? They chase the squirrels of life, all right? They're distractions. Things that we focus on for a while that keeps us from being lonely. What is the purpose of getting rid of distractions? I mean, by the very definition of distraction, it's not a good thing, okay? Because if, if, if it wasn't a distraction, we should be focusing on it. What we're supposed to be focusing on, our, our vision, our mind, our thoughts are drawn from it by what? Distractions. So obviously, and I'm not just speaking here about the Christian life, there are people in this world who are also teaching to get rid of the distractions. Here's a question. Why should I make room in my life by getting rid of stuff that isn't bad? This kind of goes back to that fasting thing a few weeks ago, isn't that right? Why should I get rid of stuff in my life that isn't bad? Well, this is why. Because I can use them, these distractions, to keep me from feeling empty. I fill my life with stuff. To run away from loneliness, emptiness, lack of purpose. Given enough time, that he can even turn to desperation. And the result of this lifestyle, guys, is my life gets awfully crowded. Sometimes with stuff that doesn't really matter. Why don't you turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. And I know those of you who are students of Revelation are like, Oh man, I wanted to see him open up like Revelation 17 or something. Pansy just went to the letters to the churches in the beginning. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Revelation's a big one, folks, alright? Turn to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to read verse 20. So probably sounds somewhat familiar to you. Even if you're not sure where it was in your Bible, you, know, you, you might know it's there and you've heard it before. This is what Revelation 3.20 says. This is Jesus. If you have a Bible, by the way, that does the red letters, that the, the, or the letters of Jesus, these letters are red. 
These are the words of Jesus. And a revealing vision to the Apostle John near the end of his life. Okay. This is what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. You know, interestingly enough, this passage is often used by teachers and preachers as an invitation to non-believers. And that is completely wrong. This was never written to non-believers. This was written to a church. A church of people who had already been introduced to Jesus. A church made up of believers. So let's look at this in a bigger way. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. And let's get the whole picture, okay? To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen and faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this. That's Jesus, by the way. He says, I know your deeds. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my father's throne. And I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Laodicea, what, what, what was it with these people? It was a church, it was close to Ephesus. Matter of fact, some of you who, who were able to be a part of, goodness gracious, that's over a year. It's like almost two years ago now. And we had a class in here on Wednesday nights on the church in Colossae. We, the, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to them called Colossians, it's in our New Testament. And in Colossae, in Colossians, the letter written there, we see Laodicea mentioned. It was a town that was somewhat close to both Ephesus and Colossae. And you have Laodicea. Now, there's an interesting thing about Laodicea. Very wealthy, wealthy, wealthy city. It's right on the, right on the juncture of, many, of a couple trade routes. This place, let me tell you how, how well off this city was. Okay, this city was a part of the Roman Empire. During the reign of Nero, who also happened to be the emperor of Rome during our early church times here, all right, when the majority of the New Testament was written, there was an earthquake, and Laodicea was damaged like crazy. It wasn't laid flat, but it was hurt 
bad. And Nero, being the kind and great emperor that he was, yeah, whatever, he was a tyrant. But anyway, he knew how important Laodicea was, so he offered state money, he offered funds to rebuild the city. And you know what the people of Laodicea had said? Nah, we'll take care of it ourselves. It reminds me of, you remember that tornado in Greensburg? You remember that? There was a group of us that went out there and, and worked on, on what was left of homes. You know? And it was interesting, those of you who went on that trip will remember that as we were pulling in, there was a Mennonite community to the south of the town. And while we were there cleaning up, to the south of the town, there were already structures in the process of being rebuilt. There were already two-story levels of framing being done. Because that community didn't rely on the government to help them get restarted. (laughs) It's amazing. And Laodicea was that way. So we're talking about a wealthy, wealthy community. And apparently this wealth gave this church problems. Life distractions brought by their wealth push Jesus off the throne of their hearts, minds, and souls. And Jesus said himself, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Let me back in. We speak of the void in terms of non-believers saying that there is a place in you. If you don't have Jesus in your life, there is a place in you where something's missing. him. You need him. You were created that way. But what, we we put that on non-believers, but what about us? Are we guilty of pushing Jesus out like the church in Laodicea? A church so wealthy they turned Nero's money down when they needed help being rebuilt. I got a confession, guys. Even in my alone time with God. Okay, we, we have a lot of different terms for that. Our devo time, perhaps. Maybe it's, it's your quiet time. Your time of study, your time of prayer. We've got, we've got different names for that. For, for me personally, even my alone time with God and with His Word is rushed. Because my mind is already focusing on what comes next. The rest of the day. Oh, I gotta make that phone call. Oh, I probably ought to holler at that person. Man, that study needs to and, and it just and camp, oh my goodness, camp that oh, it's, Bailey's right, it's a lot of work. When you're given the responsibility, JB can say firsthand the responsibility of deaning a week of camp. And so the mind goes there rather than staying right where I'm at in that moment. And sometimes my time with God becomes more academic than meditative. What I mean by that, I've got to learn something out of this that I can use, you know. Have you ever been there? I hope that you have a time alone with God on a consistent basis. It's vital. It's vital to your success 
living like Jesus in this world? If you do, does your time alone with God look a little like mine sometimes? What can I get out of that? Mine's already gone, already gone. And then I try to pray. I've already been thinking for 15 minutes about what I shouldn't have been thinking about. And then I'm trying to pray. We're put into a world, folks, that doesn't like this or the God it represents. And it's not easy to live in that world. In some parts of this world, it's more difficult than others. But it's not easy. And so, we know the importance of living right in that world, being a light. We know that we have to know this pretty well. We have to know what we believe because it's going to be questioned sometimes. So we have to be able to defend what we believe. You know what C.S. Lewis had to say about that? Writer and author C.S. Lewis. And man, Bailey used this all this week. And it's not conforming to my ears anymore. This is what he had to say about God's word. He said, we cannot spend all of our time defending God's word. There are times we must feed on it. And that's what meditation in God's Word is all about. So here's the questions, folks. What are you and I going to do about getting closer to our Lord? Listening more actively and effectively. What are we going to do? How are we going to get there? First of all, if you do not regularly take time to pray to God alone and dig into His Word alone, that is where you need to start. But if you're like me, that doesn't always work because of the way I approach it. So how am I, how are you going to listen more actively and effectively? How are we going to meditate with our Father? Will we take time to breathe in a world that tries so hard to suffocate us? I'm telling you, the world, if it hasn't happened yet, will try to choke every bit of Jesus out of you that it can What are we going to do to breathe in that world? You know what I'm going to do? I know it's going to sound so funny. And I got the idea from the author of that book, Making of an Ordinary Saint. I'm going to buy a bike. (laughs) You're like, what in the world does that have to do with meditation? Now, I'm not talking about a motorcycle. I'm sorry, Blair. I can't do that. I promised my mom. I'm going to buy a bicycle. I'm tired of bicycles that the gears freeze up on and the brakes won't work. So I'm going to buy a real bicycle. I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend a little money. I'm going to get a real bicycle. With three wheels. No, with training wheels. Come on. I'm going to buy a bike because from our house to this church building is 14 miles by gravel road. I'm going to start riding to church at least two or three times a week. See, I don't, I don't have that time built into, into my life on a regular basis where I can just 
pull back. That forces me to do that. And it's not original with me. I mean the author of that book does that. And he said everything from the breathing part of it to being in God's creation sharpens and focuses his mind. And he said when he contemplating the thought of meditating before God and breathing before God and focusing on God, he realized he'd been doing it for years and didn't even realize it. It's called his bike ride to work, 12 miles every day. So I'm buying a bike. What about you? You going to set some time aside in the morning? You know, we talked about this in life group. And you know what Shauna said? She said, you know what? If I'm going to spend time with God, I got to get up before my kids. I love them. I love them. But if I don't get up before them, it's not happening. And you love getting up early in the morning, don't you, Shauna? You just don't shake your head. No, you just love it. You know you do. No, No, she hates it. She made that very clear at life group. And it's a choice to get up and be alone with God. Maybe some of you have the drudgery of a pretty long commute to work in the morning. Why not see it as an opportunity and not a burden? Some of you might already be doing this. I spoke with my, with my cousin Dustin just this past week and we were, we were talking about I mean, I brought up that I mean, I was thinking about it all week. This topic of meditation and and, um, and and really, really focusing on God and time alone with God. And he, I said, "Well, what about you?" He said, "Well, he said, you know, we live in Webb City. Lives in Webb City, Missouri." And he said, I, "I'm I'm a school administrator at a small school ten miles north of Mount Vernon." Now, if you know Missouri at all, you know we're talking about a pretty good distance there. And he said, "I drive fifty minutes one way to work." Every day. I said, is that tough? He said, used to be. He said, but now I do three things on my way to work every morning. He said, first thing I do is I hop my car. This is just what works for me. I turn, turn station. He didn't tell me what station it was, but I turned to the station. It's, 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 it's just worship music, and I just worship with it. Now, I've heard Dustin sing before. It's probably a good thing there's nobody else in the car, okay? But it's beautiful music to God, I know that. I said I do that for about 10 to 15 minutes. And he said, then I just turn everything off. And he said, and I pray. That's a pretty long prayer. He said, well, I pray for the students. pray for many of them by name. I pray for the teachers. Pray for my family. And he kind of stopped there. By then the fireworks were starting to get going. We're helping my brother shoot fireworks, you know. So our conversation got cut off. He did say one other thing that he does. And if he needs motivation to pray, this last thing that he does definitely will bring that. And he said the last few minutes before he gets to school, he listens to the news on the radio. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you need some reasons to pray, just listen to the news for a while. It's ripe with news, things to pray for. That's what, that's what Dustin does. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, that's, maybe that is you. Maybe you, you have to hop in a car and drive a good 25 minutes to work in the morning. Maybe you're a student and you get on a bus because mom and dad don't let you drive to school. And then you got all kinds of time to spend with God.
in the morning. More than anything else when it comes to this, folks, we have to remember the purpose of meditation isn't simply, like the world says, emptying myself of worry and stress or even addiction. That's not the purpose of Christian meditation, okay? The purpose of meditation in the life of a Christian is this, to fill oneself with God. Real meditation is getting close to the man who said this, and it's right out of Matthew chapter 11. When he said this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you know, so often we stop right there. There's more to it than that. She says, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you stressed out? Come to me. I will give you rest. But then he says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what that easy and light really mean in the Greek? It doesn't mean that it doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't mean that life's going to be a bowl of cherries from now on. What it means is this. The load is carryable. Some of you heard this before, and it's the truth. When Jesus spoke about a yoke, he wasn't talking about the most delicious part of an egg. All right? He was talking about a piece of equipment used to tie a team of oxen to an implement. All right? And some of you have seen the yokes. I mean, you might, you might see those hanging up in, in, well, you might have a family member that's much like my father-in-law, that if there's any tool from about a century ago that he comes into contact with, it's going up on the wall of the shop, let me tell you, along with a bunch of Oklahoma State memorabilia. He's crazy, Zed. All right. So, so you might think you've seen one of these yokes before, but that's not what Jesus is talking about because those are just like a single yoke. They go on a horse or a mule. Okay? Now, that, that's not what they used in that part of the world. It's not for an ox. It's for a team of oxen, a pair of oxen. And on one side of the yoke, you've got one ox, and on the other side, you've got another. What does Jesus say? He says, take whose yoke upon you? My yoke. Who's in the other side? Jesus. There is no way to be tied to Jesus by a yoke and not be close to him. It's impossible. Jesus says, you're wore out. You're stressed out. You're worried about life. Come to me. I got a spot right here for you. And we'll do this together. And we'll talk together. And we'll cry together. And we'll work together. That's what it means to meditate on the God and Savior who loved us so much he shed his blood for us. To pay the price so that we could be beside him in that yoke.
Is he standing at the door of your heart and my heart, knocking, saying, let me back in? If he is, do something about it.